All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also like giving Bibles away right, uh, right, right around here. Um, and so if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, uh, we would love to, to fix that. We'd love to give you one. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, and so we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around and through your life to, to, to be shaped by knowing him and defined by knowing him and evaluated by knowing him. Uh, and so we like putting Bibles in people's hands and finding creative ways to get people to be reading them. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, come come find me after we're done here or use the contact form in the video description and man, uh, we, can, we can knock that out pretty quickly. First um, Corinthians chapter 6. Um, so we are in week 10 now of an effort to walk through the letter uh, that we call the, uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians together. Um, we call it the first letter, but really it's, it's kind of the middle of a much longer conversation. Uh, there's been at least one letter apiece from each party back and forth by the time we, we kind of jump in media res uh, into this conversation. Um, and so, uh, but it, in our first interaction with this longer conversation, Paul is addressing a young church uh, in the Greek city of Corinth. Corinth, if you look at the, the country of Greece, uh, you have kind of two major pieces connected together by a little skinny isthmus thing, which isthmus is a funny word, uh, but it's a little skinny piece of land. And Corinth sits in the middle of that piece of land. There's a port on either side of them. They were kind of an administrative uh, capital for the region. So people would, uh, ships would come in from the port on their, their west or their east, uh, and then they would pass through Corinth and go out on the port on their other side. And and so Corinth had a lot of cash rolling through it, had a lot of people rolling through it. It was kind of this young, urban center of the ancient world. And Paul helped to begin the church there. He was one of the very first people to preach the gospel in the city of Corinth. He led many to, to Jesus. And, and through his efforts, either directly or indirectly, the church was born there. Uh, and so he spent about uh, a year and a half there, we believe, uh, before he moved on to other places and other work. Uh, and it had been two to four years since he had been gone. So really, you're talking about five years maximum for the, the maturity level of the, the believers in Corinth. Unless there are really uh, mature believers that have moved in from the outside, uh, all the ones that are organic to Corinth are kind of baby Christians. They haven't been Christians for very long, even the leaders within the church. And so there's, there's this, there's this there's this level of immaturity there that's very, very prevalent. And so it's a church that Paul had helped to begin. It was one of the First people to preach the gospel there, and it's a church that he loved absolutely dearly. He has, he has an amazing heart for this church. In fact, as you read his letters, both this one and 2 Corinthians, other places where he referenced them, references Corinth, uh, Paul seems to have a special love for Corinth that goes deeper than, than what he seems to have for others. It doesn't mean that he hates the others. It just means that, that Corinth kind of has a special place in his heart. He wants good for them. He wants to, to shepherd them well. He can't be there because God's called them other places, but he, his heart is still in Corinth. And so he understood the city. He understood the culture of the church, uh, and, he, and he wanted so much good for them, but, but they struggled significantly because of this immaturity and because of the culture of the city. They struggled in, uh, significantly with pride. They struggled significantly with pride. Uh, they, were, they were marked by a lot of immaturity and a longing to, to be celebrated and seen and, and made much of by those outside of the body of Christ. They wanted, they wanted to be a big deal to those outside the church who supposedly operated on a different worldview and different value system and, than the church. And there's a problem with that. It doesn't, doesn't work well. And so with a pastor's heart, Paul addresses those realities head on. And the, the angle that he attacks it from is to make it clear that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world. Backwards, inside out, whatever words you want to give, give, it, give to it. it. It is upside down from the kingdoms of this world. It values different things. It chases after and pursues different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. The, the, and that upside down reality is most clearly seen. It's most clearly perceived and understood in the cross of Christ. 
The king of this upside-down kingdom came and willingly laid his own life down to make payment for our sin, for the sin of his people, simultaneously cutting the legs out from under anybody who would ever seek to earn their place next to God and anyone who would ever seek to use God to earn their place in the world. Just sweeps the legs right out from under both of them. A stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles, Paul calls it. And so entrance into this upside-down kingdom, it must happen on God's terms rather than ours. We don't get to, to make up the system. Those in the Corinthian church, they struggled with that reality. And like, let's be honest, so do we, right? Doesn't it sound a lot easier to shift the terms to something I'm already good at? It's kind of what I want to do around here. If I can move the, the goalpost in such a way that, that I'm already great at the stuff that's going to get me into the kingdom, I'm in a good place. And that's what Corinth was trying to do. They preferred their own terms. Newsflash, the, the upside-down kingdom feels upside-down. It's, it's disorienting, and it's awkward, and it's not immediate to get used to. It seems backwards to us and maybe even a little bit contemptible. Because it, sometimes it's the direct opposite of the values we've been brought up to chase after. But the question that we've been disciplining ourselves to ask throughout the series is, okay, well, is it beautiful though? Yeah, yeah, it's awkward, um, but, but is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, then well then maybe, maybe it's worth the price of admission. Maybe awkward, even temporarily, is okay to push through for the, for the sake of getting something better and more eternal and good. And so the last couple of weeks, we've seen Paul shift from addressing these larger umbrella issues, these larger umbrella realities, and to instead beginning to, to poke holes at all the practical junk that flow out of failing to completely buy into these larger umbrella realities. We've, we've seen a church be distracted by infighting. We've seen them uh, not only be tolerant of incredibly grotesque sin, but, but even celebrate themselves and pat themselves on the back for, for, uh, for, for allowing that sin and this kind of twisted understanding, the self-centered understanding of grace. We've seen them absolutely fold inward on those things. And in both of those circumstances, both of those circumstances, Paul frames the issue first as a tragic failure of leadership. But then quickly, secondly, he, he, uh, he also frames it as, as a failure to understand the new identities in Christ that, that we have, of those who have now been saved. First, a failure of leadership, but then also you don't know who you are. God has created you to be this, and you don't look like this. Those who were unrighteous but have now gained entrance into the upside-down kingdom by being washed, right? If you remember last week, by being justified and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's how chapter 5 ended a couple weeks ago. Or last week, not a couple weeks ago. There's a glaring inconsistency playing out in the Corinthian church between their actions and what God has now created them to be. They don't look anything at all the same. And an inconsistency between what they valued and chased after and what, what should now be markers of those who have been, quote, declared righteous. So we're about a third of the way through this letter now. Do you, do you think there's some other pride-fueled inconsistencies that Paul wants to bring up? Maybe needs to bring up? Yeah, so what's he going to attack this week? Verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Okay, so we see quotation marks here, right? 
Um, and so th- those quotation marks, they aren't original to the Greek, but most Bible translators put them in right there uh, to identify the fact that Paul is actually quoting something, uh, that he's referring to something that, that his audience would have been very, very aware of. And so either A, it, this is something that, that was a common saying in the city, maybe some kind of cultural Corinthian catchphrase, if you will, all right? or, or more likely, it was something that the Corinthians had likely said to him in the letter that they wrote to him. All things are lawful for me. And so he's now quoting it back to them. Remember that wrong understanding of grace? Remember their dismissiveness of sin? It was, it was birthed out of a prideful sense of themselves. They were, they were overconfident in their assessment of their own spiritual maturity, and it caused them to believe that they had things handled when they very clearly did not. Things weren't nearly as handled as they thought they were, and they were actually in way over their heads. And so this phrase, all things are lawful for me, it's, it's kind of a beat their chest moment, right? I got this. I've got this locked down. I've got this figured out. I have freedom in Christ, right? And, and because I have freedom, I can do what I want. Those of you who have teenage into grown adult children. You ever heard that? Ever heard that before? <laughs> and in one sense, it's kind of true. Kind of, kind of true. I, I mean, this idea is actually a central pillar of the book of Galatians, something else that Paul wrote. The idea that, in fact, he says in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, so Paul doesn't come out of the gate here and tell them that's just pure hogwash. Like, what are you talking about? You, you, don't, you don't know anything. That's not how the world works. He doesn't fly out of the gate ranting and raving about how ridiculous an idea that is. Instead, he introduces nuance. Like he's speaking to a heart that's never seen it before. You ever had one of those conversations? Just make that bold statement. It's like, yeah, that's a way of looking at it. But here's all these other layers you haven't considered yet. Yeah, all things are lawful, but, but listen, not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful. There, there might be a number of things that you're allowed to do because you have been set free in Christ, but at the end of the day, they are nothing more than a giant distraction from what God has actually called you to. A giant distraction. Lawful? Maybe so, but, but it stands in the way of much better things that God has in store for you. We saw this last week in, when the Corinthians running to the secular courts. Paul didn't he didn't lay down some command saying that the Christians are never allowed to be involved in a lawsuit. That's not what he said. He said they, they, they had thrown away their right to rule over uh, trivial things in a, in a righteous way. And he, he said that they were making it more difficult for, for those in the watching world to, to hear and believe the gospel. They was costing them something that they hadn't accounted for yet. Right? He didn't say that you should never be involved in a lawsuit. He said, he said you're losing something more valuable here. So slow down and think about what it's costing you, and maybe you won't rush into this. Of course it's lawful for you, but there are other layers to this that you are apparently haven't considered yet. Something might indeed be lawful, but it's also still harmful to you. Slow down. Look at this from another way, but... But then Paul doubles down here. He says, all things are lawful for me. Kind of like he's taunting them. But he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. We live in a world where rights language gets slapped on everything, right? Have you seen this? Something that bugs the heck out of me. In some instances, not all, not even most, but in some instances, it's actually a necessary discussion. Some instances. Um, but there, there are two absolutely massive realities that, that I think often get overlooked whenever we start making noise about rights in our culture. Um, the first one is that this idea of rights would be completely foreign to most people across most of human history. Just absolutely alien to them. We claim things as rights that the vast majority of people in world history would, would never have seen as a right. Um, and might even reject as one. Now, that, 
that doesn't automatically make us wrong and them right. That, that's not even close to true, but maybe we ought to slow down. Maybe we're not as smart as we think we are. I don't know. Now, nah, it can't be true. We're definitely as smart as we think we are. But there's a second massive reality that often gets overlooked in our culture's obsession with rights. And I actually think it's an even bigger issue, a much bigger issue. Sometimes, sometimes there are things that you have a right to do that can actually be incredibly harmful to you. Incredibly harmful. Um, this struggle usually comes, I think, with, uh, when we couple this rights idea with, other, with a couple other things that, that, that are, I think, overvalued and oversold in our culture. We're obsessed with autonomy and self-expression. And so when you couple those with this apparent trump card of claiming things as a right, you've got a perfect storm of, of people genuinely believing that, that whatever they feel like doing, they must be able to act on or else they've been harmed in some way. That's never come up on the news, right? In other words, any limit at all on their freedom is seen as an intentional act on their personhood. And nobody, I really mean nobody, I've never come across this. I've been trying to watch the world for 38 years now. I've never, ever watched somebody stop long enough and seriously ask the question, are there harmful consequences to this action? Are there things that I'm going to lose that might be more valuable to me and might be more important for my future? In fact, we've created a culture where even asking the question is out of bounds, right? Probably won't end well. But what if rights aren't as close to the top of the mountain as we all dream they are? What if they're actually things that are more important? What if we've... What if we've turned them into something that don't actually have the legs to support the hope we've placed on them? And so, there, there's an appropriate public conversation for this stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a conversation that that's, we've already seen playing out in our own society. I, I think it's really, really hard to organize a coherent government with this kind of culture. Probably not going to go well, but... That's a public conversation for another sphere. Remember the sphere sovereignty that we talked about last week? That's a public conversation that can and should happen in the public sphere. But then we have our own sphere. God has given the church this responsibility to speak to the spiritual side of this. And, and i got to tell you, it's kind of vacuous. It's kind of vacuous. And Paul goes, awesome. Great. Things are lawful for you. Now what? Wonderful. You've claimed something as a right, but listen, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not allow myself to be enslaved to something just because I'm allowed to do it. What, you, you think permission is the end-all, be-all of existence? What a sad little life you live. There's something greater you're leaving on the table. You might call it a right, but what you're doing is freely placing yourself back into bondage. You're enslaving yourself, willingly enslaving yourself to something that you think makes you free, but you're nothing more than an indentured servant. You now have to submit to a master. You might call it freedom, but that's not what it is. Congratulations, things are lawful for you, but what you're doing is digging the hole even deeper. Look at verse 13. He says, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So we have question marks again, right? Something else that's frequently said in Corinth, something maybe that Corinth put in their letter to him. And so what does it mean that food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for food? Well, it's kind of this idea that God gave us a stomach, so I guess he must mean for us to fill it. If I get hungry, that must be a natural sign that God wants me to feast. We can spin that out to other subjects. Paul does here. God gave me specific body parts. They do very special things. So he must therefore want me to use them and use them often and use them creatively. 
If I have an urge, well, then that must be a sign from God that I need to fulfill that urge. I mean, that's the argument. However I dream that urge might need to be fulfilled, that's exactly how I must chase it. Stomach for food and food for the stomach, right? But how does Paul respond to that truth? He says that God is going to destroy both one and the other. Meaning, urges, just like our imagined sense of rights, they aren't the end of existence either. There's something beyond urges. We may, we may live in a world that doesn't know of or, or, or think much of or even understand transcendent realities. They don't, they don't understand uh, anything of or know of the brokenness of sin in this world and, and in our bodies and the God who is faithful to fulfill all of his future promises to us. They, they may not be able to, to wrap their heads around those realities, but we're supposed to, Right? We're supposed to know those things and lean into to trust those things. Those transcendent realities are something that we're supposed to have locked down and understand about the world we live in. Not, not only do we believe that, that this world and, and, our, and our bodies that live in it are, are both broken by sin, but we also believe that there is a coming day when, when God will finally and forever remove the brokenness of sin from this world and our bodies that live in it. We understand both the sinfulness of this moment and a coming moment that we can hope for and wait for where the sinfulness of this moment will be no more. Later on in this letter, Paul's going to call our bodies perishable. He's going to say, sown in dishonor, waiting to be raised in glory. And so we know better. We know better than to just blindly trust what comes naturally to these broken bodies because we know our bodies. We know how broken they are. We, we expect our urges to be marred. We expect our urges to be stained by sin. Our stomachs lie to us all the time. Those of you who have put on weight because of COVID, you know that to be true, right? Blow through your snacks. It ain't because you're hungry. What is it? What's the reason? You're bored. Uh, that was my March reality, guys. We, get, we had to fix some things. Our stomachs lie to us all, all the time. Mine is a professional con man. So um, if our stomachs are that good at it, do you think there are other urges that can do that too? And, and might even be better at it? And, and might be significantly more costly when they succeed? If our stomachs can be guilty of lying to us, what else? Paul says that despite our urges, our bodies weren't made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. Our bodies were made to know Him and to walk deeply in relationship with Him. Paul doesn't say that those urges don't exist. He's not some ostrich sticking his head in the sand. He's not ignoring the problem. He doesn't say, urges, oh, what are these urges? We, we don't have these things. No. He says, there's something transcendent here. There's something transcendent here. He doesn't say that those urges don't exist. He points us past those urges to a transcendent reality. Our sexual urges lie to us all the time. They try to tell us that our desires must, must be satisfied because they are the apex of, the, of existence in this body. But God created our bodies and he will one day raise up our bodies just like he did with Jesus. We have a satisfaction awaiting us that is deeper and truer and goes significantly beyond what our puny little desires could ever dream up of in this world. We can say no to our desires, not because we're some kind of fake, pious thing that sees virtue and pretending they're not there. We can say no to our desires because we have been promised something infinitely better and we've gotten a taste of it. And so we are perfectly content to say, no, nah, I'm good, I'll wait. But remember who we're dealing with here. Corinthian church isn't exactly the most mature folks in the room and so they're struggling with this stuff. And so look at verse 15. 
Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call a time out there. Um, so we've got our, another do you not know, right? We, we talked about this last week. Uh, Paul is calling their attention to something that ought to be obvious, but sadly, apparently, it's, it's not obvious. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? If you'd only been paying attention, if you've been reading your, your Bibles correctly, if you've been doing the simple things that God had called you to do, you wouldn't be scratching your heads about this right now. It should be obvious. He's, um, he, calls them, he calls us members. Members are, are a word that we don't use much in our culture, at least not the way that Paul is currently using it. Uh, he's talking about body parts, which seems weird to us because that's not the way we normally talk about members. Uh, the Bible teaches that that Jesus is the head of the church, that he rules and reigns over, right? This is one of the reasons why we, we frequently refer to the church as the body of Christ. We're, we're actually pointing to a theological truth in that moment, or sometimes just the body, right? Um, and so uh, the, the church is an extension of Jesus under his headship. That's a theological reality. Uh, at, at the same, in the same way that, that a head controls the body, the, the body ought to respond to the head. The head dictates moves and the fingers respond, right? The head says, turn left, and the body's supposed to turn left. And you have a gigantic problem on your hands if the, the head says, turn left, and the body turns right instead, right? Like, that's a sign of a, of a major neurological problem. Something is messed up, and you need immediate medical help. But if you, and so the Bible, it, it teaches a connectedness between God and his church that goes significantly deeper than just a king sitting back behind the lines on a faraway throne dictating orders to the front. There, there's a union here between Jesus and his church. We are one body, members of Christ. But notice that Paul isn't talking to, uh, talking really about a group here. He's talking about individual bodies. And so we can dig another layer down into this. Not, not only is it a corporate identity of the church that sees Christ as the head, but Jesus is also the head over each and every one of us individually as well. He's ahead of us individually. We have been joined to him, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible next actually never shuts up about this reality. We've got a few verses here. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that believers are created in Christ. Galatians 2.20, we are crucified with him. Colossians 2.12, we are buried with him. Romans 6.3, we are baptized into Christ and his death. Romans 6.5, we are united with him in his resurrection. Ephesians 2.6, we are raised up and seated with him. Active tense, by the way, in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 12.5, Christ is in us. And 1 Corinthians 1.30, we are in him. Philippians 3.8 and 9, believers gain Christ and are found in him. I, I could go on. This isn't some fringe doctrine that's optional for us to think about. The Bible teaches that it is because we are in Christ that we are saved. And I know the more theologically minded of you probably peeked your ears up right there and go, wait, really? Yeah. Think through this idea a little more seriously for a second. The Bible teaches that justification, sanctification, adoption, those are not pathways that set the stage for our union with Christ. They are realities that flow out of our union with Christ. So this reality, I get it. It's a little mysterious. It's hard to wrap our heads around. It might be, might be hard for us to, to really kind of lock down and make sense of, but it's not some illustrative aid for a deeper theological truth. It's a core pillar of biblical theology. It's an intimate reality between God and man that according to verse 15 here, somehow also includes the entirety of who we are. We're, it's not merely some spiritual reality. Our physical bodies are involved in this as well. We are united to Christ. Members of Christ considered his body parts. And so what does that have to do with our topic for the morning? Well, look at what he says in the back half of verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So there's a picture for you, right? That visceral reaction you kind of immediately thought of, that's the correct one. It's an idea that's meant to repulse you. We talked already throughout this series about the sexual promiscuity happening in, in the city of Corinth. It's something that most Bible teachers and most Bible studies key in on and make a big deal about. And so if you spend any time at all studying through the book of 1 Corinthians before you got here, this is something you're well aware of. And, 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 and Corinth, man, they, they earned that reputation. Uh, the city was actually way bigger uh, a couple hundred years before Paul is writing this letter. Uh, they, uh, the, the Greeks had built up the city to, to be a pretty big deal, but in 146 BC, Rome came in and sacked the city. All right? If you don't know how uh, parts of the Roman Empire became parts of the Roman Empire, it's because the Roman army made them parts of the Roman Empire. All right? And so Corinth was doing its own thing in the Greek world, and Rome went, we want that one. And so they, they tore down the city. All right? That happened in 146 BC, uh, and they pretty much torched the place and tore it completely down. It had been a big deal, but, you know, rubble. Uh, but they started rebuilding the city. Rome was also really, really good at rebuilding the city. Uh, before Rome came, there was a giant temple there uh, to Aphrodite, all right, the goddess of love, all right? And so how, how, how do you worship the, the goddess of love? By acting out things with temple prostitutes, all right? That's just how that goes, all right? And so it was common a couple hundred years before Paul wrote this letter, for people to travel all over, from all over the ancient Greek world to come participate in worship acts in the temple of Aphrodite. The reputation in Corinth went, went far. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Um, Rome tore down the temple when they sacked the city. and It had been rebuilt again by Paul's day, but it, it was considerably smaller, a lot less famous. Um, Less people were traveling specifically to Corinth for that purpose, but man, that, that, that's what Corinth was, was known for. But it was still something that happened though, right? That reputation had, had been firmly established. And by the time you get to Paul's day, mid-first century AD, about 200 years later, the sexual deviance going on in Corinth was, was less to do with the temple and more to do it was driven more by this cosmopolitan spirit of pluralism. Like, like I mentioned before, it was a, it was a major hub for, for transportation. And so people were passing in and out of the cities. Lots of ideas were passing in and out of the city. Lots of different types of uh, beliefs and backgrounds were passing in and out of the city. Lots of cash was passing in and out of the city. And so uh, a you-do-you kind of vibe, it really opened the door for some weird stuff. And that, that's basically what's going on. And so Paul here, he goes, hey, you think it's a good idea? Just spitballing here. You think it's a good idea for Jesus to be mixed up in sexual acts with a prostitute? We, we, we all thinking that's something he'd be into? Something that would add glory to his name? Think he's on board with that? Should we put it to a vote? Paul quotes Genesis 2 here. He says, the two shall become one flesh. God creates Eve. He brings her to Adam. He joins them together as husband and wife. Not, not merely as some kind of convenient physical relationship because they're the only ones around. No, this is not some kind of utilitarian thing. No, in the garden, God joins man and woman together in a spiritual unification. The two become one. We live in a world that likes to believe that it has evolved and come to maturity now when it comes to our understanding of sex. As if all the cultures that came before us couldn't figure it out, but we've finally arrived. Right? And our culture looks at the Bible's teaching on, on sex as something that somehow robs you of purpose and meaning. It tries to argue that, that anybody would ever hold to such a teaching is not only hopelessly antiquated, but also forcing primitive beliefs upon those who are now enlightened. But the Bible's indictment on our culture is not trying to drag it back to the Stone Age. Our, the Bible's in, indictment on our culture is that we've actually cheapened sex to something that's less than what God saw fit to give. We treat sex flippantly in our culture, and it's precisely because we have robbed it of a spiritual dynamic that God intended to carry purpose and meaning. 
intended to carry purpose and meaning. We, we commandeered his gift. We crippled his good design. And now we have the audacity to turn around and, and accuse him of being repressive. Maybe Corinth aren't the only ones guilty of immaturity and blind pride. But despite however we try to, to use it, despite however we try to manipulate it, God's design is a union of body and spirit that truly turns two people into one. And, and deep down, man, I think we already know that to be true. I think we all understand that reality, even though we kick and fight against it. This is a major, major reason why sexual relationships that end are so incredibly painful. It's because they're not supposed to end. We've united two people and then torn them apart. This is a reason why sexual assault is so incredibly heartbreaking. It's not simply because autonomy has been ignored. Purely physical acts do not cause that kind of emotional and spiritual trauma. Every pastor has counseled somebody who has been in a situation that has torn them to pieces. I promise you it's not a physical act. It's much deeper than that. We pretend that sex is nothing more than physical bodies responding to physical urges, but deep down we all know better. We all know better. In fact, I think, I think we all know that we're lying to ourselves. The problem is that we don't want to face the consequences of facing up to the lie. So we continue to blind ourselves to those realities because we know it's costly. The Corinthians, there was a disconnect that caused them to, to see their participating with prostitutes as something that shouldn't even be an issue. Like, why would, you, why would you bring that up? I mean, it's just a physical action, right? Why make such a big deal out of it? Food for the stomach and stomach for food, am I right? separate the spiritual side of this. You can't divorce out the spiritual side of this. The two become one, we're told. If you're united to Jesus and you unite yourself to, to someone else in sexual sin, that means that you're involving Jesus in your sexual sin. Still have that visceral reaction? We should. So how in the world do you respond to such a realization, right? Well, Paul's got us covered. Verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. I'm going to stop there. Paul says, run away from it. Like actually run away from it. Take drastic measures and get out of Dodge. Get out of there. Oh, but you don't understand. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost me some things and, and, and mess up some things. More than you're already messing up? doubt it. There, there may indeed be a cost to distancing yourself from that sin, but, but listen, if you, if you really think that the cost is too high, it might be because you're not accounting for other things properly. You haven't properly accounted for what it is you've lost and, and seek to gain back. Paul says, flee. Just flee, you, you know, as if your life actually depended upon that. As if there was a, a physical necessity to safely avoid it. I don't know, that seems a little harsh. I, I know it's sin, but I really think slow growth is called for here. Give me some time to, you know, just to pursue a gradual sanctification. Help me, help me be discipled in this. I'll get there one of these days. I mean, all sin's the same, right? We wouldn't prescribe such rash actions against other stuff. R right? Well, let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, so sometimes, sometimes, uh, wrong understanding about doctrine and about theological reality, sometimes uh, those misunderstandings can fairly be chalked up to uh, that reality being rejected uh, by the one responsible for teaching. And so they don't like what it says, and so they, they, they divert and they teach something else because it sounds better to their ears. Sadly, that's a reality that happens way too often in the larger culture of the church. I think it's a tragedy. But sometimes though, sometimes wrong understanding about uh, doctrine and theological realities, sometimes uh, the, the, the reason for that is really nothing more but because people who were trying to be faithful as Bible teachers weren't nuanced enough when they were explaining the issue. Right? I've been guilty of that in my life more times than I can count. Right? And so they weren't careful to, to say certain things rather than other certain things. And so in, in an effort uh, uh, to, to clearly teach that, that all sin is equally worthy of the wrath of God, right? uh, th- this is definitely one of those places that, that, that Bible teachers fail to, to give nuance. And in an effort to clearly teach that, that all sin is worthy of the wrath of God, that all sin is deserving of the righteous punishment of God, and that there are no gradations to, to what is owed for sin. No matter what sin we're talking about, uh, the wages are death. The Bible is crystal clear about that, right? The wages of sin, all sin is death. And so in an effort to clearly teach that reality, what often ends up actually getting said out loud is that, quote, all sin is the same. The problem, though, is that that's not true. That's not what the Bible actually teaches. All sin carries the same wages from a holy and righteous God. It's infinitely heinous because, it is, because He is infinitely holy. We, we've discussed that ad nauseum around here. All sin is equally worthy of a holy and righteous indignation from a holy and righteous God. But that does not mean, that does not mean that all sin is rooted in the same exact intent. And it does not mean that all sin carries the same earthly consequences in this life. Nor does it mean that true repentance always looks exactly the same from case to case. We oversimplify All sin carries the same just punishment, but is highly reductionistic and completely unbiblical to merely say all sin is the same. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul argues that there is a heightened reality to sexual sin. Beyond what we see with with sins of other kinds, there's a heightened reality to the damage that it does. All other sin is outside the body, but with sexual sin, apparently, because of this union that we now have with Christ, we are doing damage to to something inside the body, a body that doesn't belong to us anymore, a body that, that through the grace of God has become a dwelling place for God. Paul says, don't you know? This would be obvious if you were paying attention. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And people in the fitness industry have hijacked that idea by removing the Holy Spirit part out of the equation. They'll, they'll stop at calling their body a temple, right? Um, so they can emphasize treating it well, not uh, eating healthy things, not putting things in your body that would, would harm your body, that kind of stuff. And, and, and there's something to be said about you know, thinking through those issues and taking care of your body. In fact, it could probably be fairly argued that throughout the history of the church, the church has done a pretty poor job at teaching that we're to, to steward our bodies well. And so that's, that's a fair thing to, to, to bring up. But you can't make that point from this text. You don't get to use this text to make that point because that's not what this text is talking about. That's not what Paul's saying here. Temples are only special because God is there. In fact, a temple without God in it is just a mighty work of idolatry. That's all that temple is. Pretty thing that deserves the wrath of God. Paul doesn't say, don't you know your body is a temple? You've got to take care of that sucker. No, he tells the follower of Jesus, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. So whatever you're doing with that temple ought to be done with the full knowledge that it's being done before the altar of the Lord. You think that might have an effect on how you fellowship with him? 
You cannot divorce spiritual realities from sexual sin. It is never just a physical action. Why? Because you carry the Spirit of God within you into that action. You carry Him into the sinful act. And so, one of the earthly consequences of intentionally walking in sexual sin is is that it causes us to become calloused to the Holy Spirit within us. He may, he may own the place. He may have purchased it for himself, but we shove him off the throne and say, you go sit over there. I'm in control here. I, I got it. Or as the Corinthians like to put it, all things are lawful for me. It's just sad immature way of looking at the world. It's a puffed up chest and a blind belief that we're somehow smarter than him. That's all it is. Paul's got a ton of work left to do in Corinth. The kingdom of God doesn't look anything at all like what they were so desperately chasing after. It's upside down in every conceivable way. But the question, right, is, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And so, listen, if you're sitting here this morning, you've got a whole lot on, in your life that you're not proud of, right? Like if you're pouring over situation after situation in your life where, where this calloused posture is a fair a fair assessment of your heart. What do you do now? Right? And just like last week, like this is not an exhaustive list of sins that are out there, but man, I think it's a list that none of us escape. I'm guilty of this. So, so what, what do we do if we find ourselves in this place? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think our answer is found in verses 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christian, when, when Jesus went to the cross to make payment for your sin, all of your sin, every bit of it, every ounce of it was still future sin. And yet he went anyways. He went anyways. He, he, he's not... He was fully conscious of, of what he was getting himself into at that moment. He's not sitting back no, going right now, going, I, I didn't see this one coming. I, I, I think I doubt what I did there. I, I didn't sign up for that one. He's not thrown back by your sin. He is not scratching his head wondering how he got into this mess. He has is, he is lovingly made provision to cover your sin. But listen, he also calls you this morning to flee from your sin. Flee from it. Run away. So if you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what he reveals about himself. He was the one who made payment joyfully. Joyfully made payment to make you his. In the Old Testament, whenever God's people came to to a realization of their sin. They cried out to God, they cleaned out the temple, and then they got to work doing what God had called them to do. Sounds like a pretty good model for us. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time set aside for us to respond to God's word. If, listen, if you need somebody to talk to, I'd love to do that, whether you're watching us online or you're here in the room. But listen, if you're, if you're hanging out with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, how in the world do you respond to this, right? I mean, this stuff is just a little backwards and upside down from everything you've been taught in this world. Doesn't exactly strike you immediately as a good thing, probably. Maybe even contemptible. So how do you respond? No matter what your worldview is, I think eventually every honest person on the planet has to ask the question, are the things I'm chasing after actually working? Do they actually gain me what, what they were promising to, to give me? Have, have the, the promises they've made actually come to fruition? Because listen, you can only keep doubling down on effort for so long before you need to finally turn that one in and try something different. 
Maybe the reason that those things don't ultimately satisfy our hearts is because we've actually been created to be fulfilled by something deeper and more eternal than urges and autonomy. Maybe, some, maybe God's got something better for you than those things. What if we've been created to intimately know and be known by the one who has so much more in store for us than the empty things we tend to chase after? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond by meeting Jesus. Uh, he knows your sin, every bit of it, and yet he came. He came. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died sinlessly and perfectly on the cross as a substitute in my place and yours to make payment for our sin. And he was raised again from the dead as, uh, as a down payment of our future resurrection. And so now the king who conquered sin and death calls on you this morning to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord, and you can do that right now. You can do that in this moment. You, you don't need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. If you're here in the room, I, we could talk. I'll be down front. If you're watching us online, you can use the, the contact form in the video description, but it's a good day to, to lay aside things that not only are, are not working, but have never worked, and lean faithfully on the one who promises you infinitely more than those failures ever could. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond, let's respond together right now. Father, you get to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Even when they fly in the face of our current cultural moment. Thank you for being a God who transcends all the petty things that we think are important all the petty things that we think matter in this world even. God, help us to see the insufficiency of the things we chase. Help us to see the, the insufficiencies of the things we put our hope in, the things that we think fulfill us and define us and complete us. Help us to ask the question, okay, what now? Help us to begin to see the nuance of other layers and other questions to ask. God, for those who, who may be handling these things a little bit better, give us winsome and patient, but also clearly countercultural words on our lips. Help us speak into a world that is still, still believes that they can figure it out and they got it. God, help us to be a gospel light in a dark, dark place. Father, for those who, who are here who may not know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you this morning? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom? Whether they're in this room or they're watching us online or maybe they came across a video 20 years from now. Who knows? Save people by this. For your glory and for the fame of your name, save people. God, we need you. Thank you for being good to us in spite of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.